Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tapir. Gergelecte. Sacula Ijaia. Food. Change. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sfin podcast. My name is Valentina Gritti and I'm the Global Community and Project Manager of the Slow Food Youth Network. The Slow Food Youth Network, or as we call it Sfin, is a worldwide network of young activists with different backgrounds who want to contribute to a better local and international food system. The podcast of today is part of the series Slow Food Goes Brussels, focusing on the latest European policy updates. So, as always, for this series, our special host from the Slow Food Europe office in Brussels is Alice Poiron. In this episode, Alice interviews Marta Messa, Secretary General of Slow Food International and Director of Slow Food Europe. How can we save the world through food? How has the war in Ukraine impacted the food system? What are the European policy highlights for 2023? But also, who is Marta Messa beyond her role in slow food? Let's find out together. Hello, Marta. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and our listeners. Hi, Alice. Thank you for having me. Last year, you were elected Secretary General of Slow Food International on top of your current role as Director of Slow Food Europe in Brussels. First of, first of all, congratulations on the new role. Thank you very much. And uh, because of this new twofold position that you're in, I have many questions for you about slow foods and its role in helping shape food narrative and policies in the world and in Europe. And I'll also save up some time for more personal questions to introduce you to those listening to us right now, if that's okay with you. Sure. First, I'd like to start with a short extract of Slow Food International's new official presentation video. Can we change the world through food? Of course we can. Slow Food is a movement of people and communities united in their commitment to building a better world through food. A world that nourishes biodiversity, cares for the environment and ensures social equity. Our world is in crisis. In a quest for never-ending growth and speed, we are devouring all that is left on planet Earth. This is the challenge that defines our age. But through food, which is central to many of these challenges, we can imagine a different future. A future in which everyone can enjoy food that is good for them, good for the people who grow it, and good for the planet. This video just came out a few weeks ago, and as we just heard, it starts with, can we save the world through food? Of course we can, which is a super strong and positive statement. So my question for you, Marta, is how can we save the world through food? Precisely because food relates to us all, it's a super powerful tool to basically generate change. And the other important thing is that food is deeply connected with nature. And You know, in a moment where we're facing the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis and you name it, and the pandemic that started off from an unequal and unbalanced relationship between humankind and, and nature, then you see that, you know, food that relies so much on the use of natural resources is really like a powerful driver of how we interact with nature and how we treat nature for, for us and for future generations. And then another thing I would say and that is very powerful about food is that Not only do we all deal with food, but food is very somehow close to our identities and to 
how we feel, of course, to our heads, but also to, to who we are. So many of us, I believe most of us have memories of, you know, the food we ate when we were small and, you know, what our parents or grandparents cooked for us. And, uh, and so there's also this fact that food is a very, if you want, easy entry point to engage with people. Um, so in a way, like it's a really pleasant, besides, <laughs> tool and way to, to really tackle the many crises we're facing nowadays. So that's how we see yeah, that we can change the world through food. And how is specifically slow food contributing to that? So it's been a long story uh, in the sense that, you know, when slow food started back in the 80s, Uh, and it was a small group of friends, uh, you know, it started from the realization that some of the, and it started in a, in a small region in Italy, but it started from the realization that some of the amazing foods and dishes that we had were getting lost along the way because of an industrialization of the food system. And so in this one book by Carlo Petrini, the founder of Slow Food, he mentions how he was always stopping at this restaurant um, for a plate of peperonata, so paprika-based traditional dish. And all of a sudden he realized like it was tasteless, like it had no flavor whatsoever. And that's because all of a sudden the paprikas were not coming anymore from the local producers, but they were coming from the Netherlands where they, produced, where they were being produced in a very efficient way. But efficiency doesn't go so well with taste. And out of that, out of other realizations, basically, like the, the urge came up to, to do something about it. And I'm saying it's been a long story because it started basically from realizing what's in our plate. Um, and of course, that is very much connected to what is happening under our feet, in the soil, how we're treating our soils, what's happening with seeds. And so I'm taking too long, but the long story short is... Um, The way we're trying to contribute through it, to, to, to change in the world through food, is that, you know, we are working on three, so to say, priorities. One is the defense and promotion of biodiversity, where biodiversity, as I always say, is not just the birds and the bees, even though they're very important indicators of the health of biodiversity, but it's also the biodiversity of knowledge and of know-how and the biodiversity in our soils and the biodiversity of good bacteria that lead to the fermentation of breads and beers and you name it. Um, so there is this also cultural biodiversity. And so we have a number of activities on the ground to promote and keep alive this biodiversity. And it's not about putting biodiversity in a museum, it's having biodiversity live. So we often say, eat it to save it, you know, like eat the food that you want to save. The second priority is um, inspiring the citizens to take action. So, you know, whether it's the classical education in the classroom or in a school garden, but you know it can also be all kinds of activities to really raise awareness among citizens as to what the food system is like and how we can bring about change. And the third priority of our action is uh, basically changing, influencing the policies of private and pub public institutions, so what we shorten with the term advocacy. So, And we see this as fundamental to work with these In, across these three priorities, because if we were just to change food production, but everybody's still going by junk food, that would not help. And if we were just to change food consumption, but if, like the production is not coming along, then things would not help. So we see that for change to happen, everybody needs to be on board and we need to work across the system. How would you explain slow food to someone who doesn't know it simply and clearly? So you're basically <laughs> asking me for our elevator pitch, kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... 
formally, I would say Slow Food is a grassroots-based organization promoting everyone's right to good, clean and fair food. Then, when I'm in an event, what I usually do, depending on the audience, I'm also saying, you know, what comes to your mind when I say slow food or, um, you know, basically slow food is the exact opposite of fast food. And that's usually when people are like, ah, okay, I see that because, um, you know, it's so clear to all of us what fast food at least looks like. It's not so clear to all of us what fast food goes hand in hand with. So the monocultures, the standardization of flavors and preparations. But it's, um, yeah, it's a very effective way to, to get people to understand with a sort of ha ah, kind of moment what, <laughs> what slow food is about. Then, of course, there's a, little, a, a bit more of explanation that needs to go into it. But yes, that's how I would describe it. Um, so as I mentioned in my uh, introduction, you have now a new role within slow food. And where do you broadly wish uh, to take slow food in the coming years like what future do you envision for the organization so this has been a question that has kept busy the the new board of directors of slow food which is a very nice group of very cool people that um, came together already well before being elected clear, clearly also to prepare the the strategy we wanted to present and um Maybe the, the thing that summarizes where we envision slow food being in the coming years is, or becoming in the next few years is to become an ever more open organization. I'm saying that because, um, well, first of all, that's how you achieve change. The more we are, the more we're likely to uh, succeed in what we're trying to do. And also, you know, we're up against very powerful, resourceful um, interests. Uh, that are trying to keep the status quo and they're trying to gain even more market power. So we need to be many and loud and be clear that we want something different for our food, for our food systems and for the world. And, um, and then the fact about being more open comes also from a process of self-reflection about how we have been as a movement. And, you know, um, yes, for a long time, Zofood has been criticized for being too elitist because it's seeking perfection. We're not seeking perfection. We're seeking biodiversity and we're seeking, you know, everyone who in whichever way is ready to, you know, join efforts to change the food system. And and nobody needs, nobody is perfect in the first place and nobody needs to be perfect. The important thing is that there is the the wish to understand better how we can individually and collectively achieve change. And so um, that's something that we, we've said very clearly uh, that we want to do. And that, of course, goes, uh, you know, unfolds in many different ways. And one, for instance, is how we communicate what we do. Early in the interview, you mentioned some words that um, I hope somehow we will be able to explain better in the future because they're kind of in a circle kind of words like presidia, probably most of our listeners do not know what it is and it's not their fault that they don't know, but probably like one of the things we want to do is also to communicate much more clearly what we do. So instead of maybe of saying presidia, we say farmers based projects to promote local biodiversity or we need to work on that. I'm not the comms person, but, uh, <laughs> but that's part of being more open and, and clear and so that we can be more effective ultimately in the work that we do. So now I would like to uh, step aside a bit from slow food for a moment to discuss about your own personal relationship to food. Yes. <laughs> if that's okay. That's very okay. Um, I wanted to uh, start by asking if you had any particular early memories of food that came to mind. Yes, and that's where you need to get a tissue out. <laughs> 
I used to live when I was a kid uh, next to my grandma, the mom of my dad, and she was making these amazing family meals on Sundays. And so what would usually happen is that on Saturday, my younger brother and I, or my older sister and I would walk into our grandma's um, house, which was right away her dining and room and kitchen. And there would be this smell, all encompassing smell of like, um, onion and garlic that was being prepared, you know, to make the base for a ragu, uh, all homemade. And she was busy at the table, like making either gnocchi or tagliatelle, all freshly made. And so we would join in. I don't think we were contributing much to what my grandma <laughs> was doing, but uh, but it was just amazing. Like it was just like besides spending time with the grandma, but it was also this hands-on experience of you know preparing dough and rolling out the, the tagliatelle sheet and then cutting it out, rolling the, the, the roll to make them, to cut out the, the gnocchi. Um, that was basically a weekly experience for, for me and my siblings. And yeah, it was amazing. And you learned to uh, cut tagliatelle very, very young. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I need to pick up again on that. But yes, I did get, uh, you know, imprint. <laughs> nice. And when did you first realize how political food was? To be very honest, when I started working at Slow Food. Um, I, I mean, for me, politics was also very interesting in terms, not so much if you want of the politics of the political parties, but the politics of how things work and why things work a certain way. And so I studied indeed politics and international studies for my bachelor and then later economics and politics because I just wanted to understand about these dynamics and like why the world is running as it is and but to be honest I hadn't pinpointed food as a major driving force um, which maybe also tells something about how universities are not talking about food and food systems as a driving force and yeah then when I started working with slow food and um, you know you start meeting farmers and artisans and producers from different countries and you know they're just telling you the amazing things that they're doing and what it means for their communities and you know and then you put that together with data that exists about you know the volume that goes around of food and what that means also in economic terms and so on and for the environment then you're like you add things up and you're like oh wow you know food is really political and so yeah the realization if you want came a bit late for me but again it tells something maybe also about our education system yeah I had never heard about it, uh, and I studied politics. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and so you have been representing slow food for many years in Brussels. Um, according to you, how has the EU evolved on food policies? Do you notice any progress? Or on the contrary, do you feel like we are going backwards? I would say there's certainly been progress, and uh, of course, this always depends on the kind of. Um, Uh, set up you have in the Commission and in the Parliament and also what's happening at national level. But we have been lucky in the last few years to have the Ursula von der Leyen Commission that had a very clear and strong intention from the very beginning to be very active essentially on um, on a more sustainable Europe. So the whole Green Deal and the Farm to Fork and the biodiversity strategy as well were all important pieces of you know, to, to really make steps ahead in terms of um, sustainability in the food system. And for the first time ever, which in a way is a success for us as well, because it's uh, partly also the results of all the efforts we've been putting in the last years, but for the first time ever, there was the mention of the food system 
per se, and not just of agriculture, not just of consumption, not just of information to consumers, but there was a look at the, like, the understanding that we need to tackle the food system as a whole. Are we getting there yet? There's still, of course, a lot of work to do, but the fact alone that there was this you know, um, encompassing vision gave us the space and the opportunity to push a lot more for our issues. So um, I would say progress has been done. Let's see what happens with the next European elections, because of course with, with policy and with elections, you never know. And also with the trends we're seeing nowadays in Europe, uh, mo with movements towards more right-wing uh, governments, um, it's going to be interesting what's going to come up. But also what uh, has been changing in the last years in Brussels or at European level is that civil society got a lot more organized on food systems. So um, I'm very happy that as Low Food we managed to contribute to the development and birth and development of the Food Policy Coalition, which is a coalition of more than 50 organizations uh, that are really, and that span from purely environmentalist organizations to consumer organizations, animal welfare organizations, um, community supported agriculture organizations, you name it. But they're coming, converging together around the idea that we need a food policy in Europe that really achieves sustainability in the food systems. So, and the fact that we managed to get organized has meant that as civil society, we have pushed open more new spaces and more spaces to really make our voice heard. Since the war in Ukraine broke out, industrial lobby groups and conservative policymakers have instrumentalized it to try rolling back the EU farm to fork strategy, which is, for those listening to us, uh, the EU flagship policy to transition to sustainable food systems. They claim that the Ukraine crisis leaves Europe no choice but to increase food production by getting rid of environmental constraints in farming or else Europeans would go hungry. What is your answer to them, Marta? And why is it important that the EU stays the course towards sustainable agriculture? So my answer to this is that the war in Ukraine was just the last drop again um, that basically tilted and made crash an unsustainable food system. So it's not a food crisis, it's a crisis of a food system as it was set up being mainly driven by uh, industrial production and uh, an unhealthy web of connections where web of connections is something that I am quoting from a report that IPES Food, um, the panel of experts on sustainable food systems, uh, published exactly after uh, these allegations were made and after the outbreak of the uh, Ukrainian war. But this web of connections that made certain countries a lot more uh, dependent on food imports um, for their own food security. Now, the thing that is important to say is that the what was triggered by the Ukraine, the, it wasn't even triggered by the war in Ukraine, it was just really the last drop because, you know, we've had many more crises in the last few years the pandemic being one, but also the earlier financial crisis, you name it, where there were always then issues down in the food system, but it wasn't, it was just like, there were always just last drops bringing an, un, like an unsustainable system to the brink. And so what this last drop of the Ukrainian war triggered, uh, to be very clear, was a food price crisis in Europe and a food crisis in a number of countries 
that were indeed too reliant on imports from certain other countries for their food security. So that's especially the case, for instance, of a number of countries in Eastern Africa that were largely depending on imports from, uh, of, of their staples from other countries. Um, so that's a first thing to be clarified, because otherwise it, it quickly, you know, confusion is being created about, you know, there is a food crisis in Europe. There is a, a crisis in terms of prices and accessibility for consumers to food. That, yes. Um, but then the solution is not at all to increase production. And besides the way that, the, that so to say, the opponents of the, of the farm-to-fork strategy, as well as, some, as at some point um, the Commissioner for Agriculture suggested, was to increase food production by using the um, available land in Europe that was set aside for biodiversity, which is like... Um, formally they're called um, environmental focus areas that usually amount to like 5% uh, of, of farms. And so if you want, it's like, it was about increasing production by producing on a small sliver of land that is usually not even the most productive one to increase food for whom in a situation where, you know, um, even lots of the, the grains that are being produced in Europe are not even for human consumption, but they're for animal consumption. So the thing is, the, as you rightly worded it, the war in Ukraine was used as an excuse to try and roll back on an on a, um, ambitious strategy and it was not the first time that these attacks were made on this ambitious strategy because as soon as it was published, there were many attacks um, saying that it would lead to food insecurity in the world. And truth is, we have seen, we're seeing ever more clearly, not just through the data, but on our very own skin, how the situation is changing due to the climate crisis. The lack of rain um, falls, the droughts that we're experiencing, the extremely hot summers, the extreme weather events, they're all even more clearly telling us we can no longer continue this way. And we do know that agriculture is suffering from this, but can also be part of the solution. So no, we do not need to produce more. We're throwing away still a third of the food we produce. Uh, there is enough food to feed everyone. We certainly do not need to produce more by using more uh, harmful pesticides and chemicals. It's really about re shaping our food system and going towards diversified agroecological food systems. Of course, this is not interesting for the few powerful actors that are out there that are benefiting from the industrial food system because diversified agroecological food system means that more people benefit from this kind of food system. And what we're seeing, what we've been seeing in the last years is a concentration of power and resources in the hands of a few um, and clearly this, is, this change towards diversified agroecological food systems is not so interesting for them. So it's normal that they make these accusations, but data are there and uh, plentiful enough to show that we have to go a different way. And based on these observations uh, and, and uh, that anal the analysis that you just uh, made, which topics related to EU food policy are you expecting to be hot on the EU agenda in uh, 2023? So there is one uh, that we've been working a lot on uh, and that is certainly staying hot, which is the um, regulation on pesticides. Uh, so formally it's called the sustainable use of pesticides regulation, where there is already an interesting wordplay, if you want, between 
sustainable use and pesticides because uh, like that's the first thing that makes us uh, a bit confused um but where we've seen clearly uh, like a push to to push back this revision towards objectives that the farm to fork had which was a a significant reduction in the use of pesticides by 2030, 50% reduction of pesticides. So we, it's going to get hot as well because we, as civil society, have succeeded in this initiative called the European Citizens Initiative. For those who haven't heard of this, it's basically a petition. But it's a petition that involves, that needs to be signed by at least 1 million European citizens in at least, I think, 12 countries. And if that happens, then the European Commission needs to take the request into account and do something about that. So we're going to actually have a hearing at the European Parliament um, in January to discuss uh, our requests in terms of the use of pesticide. And so we're contributing to making the topic hot, if you want it this way. <laughs> so this is one. The other one that is certainly very hot is the... Um, sustainable food systems law. So this was basically already included in the uh, farm to fork strategy. That's why I was saying that, you know, for the first time we see in Europe like policies that, uh, you know, a push also from policymakers to look at the food system as a whole. And what's very interesting in there is that uh, there's going to be a definition of sustainability. So we are working hard uh, also with partner organizations to to make sure that sustainability sustainability is well defined um, and takes into account all important factors and then um, i would say another important thing you know maybe that is not going to be so hot as a topic but um, it's going to keep the civil society kind of busy is also the run up to the next european elections they're not happening this year yet but all the political groups are going to get ready um, to to basically prepare the political program so that they're ready then to run their campaigns in 2024. And that means we want now to start influencing what put on their agendas and make sure that food sustainability and food systems are on their agendas. To wrap up this podcast, I would like to finish with a small food quiz. Are you ready, Marta? Question one. What is your favorite winter dish? My favorite winter dish is called uh, gnocchi con raschera. Basically, this this plate of um, very cheesy, melty, mouth-watering uh, gnocchi. Amazing. You should try it one day. I connect it to a winter dish because it's like this very kind of warm, comfort food-like uh, dish. So um, it's not something that I would want to eat with 38 <laughs> degrees in the summer. Question two. What is your EU policy wish for the new year? Ah, a good definition of food sustainability in the sustainable food systems law. <laughs> Question three. What's one of the habits you have and would recommend to avoid food waste at home? Ah, that's a very good one. Um, what I try to do to avoid food waste is actually to uh, shop less but more often. So really just buy for the next two meals, two, three meals. And a trick that works wonders, <laughs> it's very simple, but to put food in um, uh, transparent containers, like glass containers, better to avoid plastic glass containers, mm. uh, because you always see what's in there. Um, I had experience in the past of using these amazing aluminum, not aluminum, but metal boxes that are also super sustainable, but then you don't know anymore what's mm. in the box. So it's a very simple mm. trick, but it goes a long way. 
Question four, which book would you recommend to our listeners who are interested to learn more about food politics? So I would recommend two. One is Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal by Mark Pittman. And the title sounds a bit scary, but in fact, it also has some hopeful notes toward the end. And um, a second one is Oryx and Craig by Margaret Atwood. And it's a dystopian novel about a future where basically humanity is also, among other things, like engineered food and animals to such an extent that um, basically things uh, cannot go well anymore and uh, collapse. But um, yeah, so that's for those of you who don't feel like oh, reading a book, a book about politics, mm-hmm. but if you're more into novels, the, the Margaret Atwood one can be a good choice. <laughs> Question five, which podcast would you recommend to our listeners who are interested to learn more about food politics? Of course, I'm hoping that you're going to say this one, but maybe you have another suggestion? Yes, so absolutely this one, and it's not a joke. Uh, <laughs> Alice, you've been doing a wonderful job in these podcasts. Um, the, there is one that I recommend um, that it's, doesn't just have to do with food politics, it has to do with politics in general and what's happening in the world, um, and it's the daily. Um, I. I just uh, like it because, you know, of the format it has and uh, the quality of the reporting. But, uh, you know, they also have, I don't know, every time at the end of the podcast, they list all the people that contributed. And it's like a list of 30 to 40 people. <laughs> Anyways, um, very great podcast. And every now and then, of course, there are also uh, episodes that relate more to food politics. Um, but I also find it useful in terms of understanding more in general, all the other dynamics that are also you know, influencing then politics and food politics and um, understanding, again, how the world works. So it's the Daily by the New York Times, right? Yes, correct. Thank you so much, Alice, for this interesting episode. Thanks to Marta Mesa and thanks to all of you who are supporting us by listening to the Sphin podcast. If you want to stay updated on European policy from a slow perspective, we remind you to follow Slow Food Europe on Twitter. I'm Valentina Gritti and this is the Slow Food Youth Network podcast. See you in the next episode. Ciao!